Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You want to click off now, lads? Ready, Dave? Uh, I'm always ready, mate. Yeah. It is Sunday, which means it's time for the front three. As always, with me, Adam Bolt, with the one and only Lawrence McKenna. Yep. And welcome back to the one and only Statman Dave. Statman Dave. Dave. Wow, thanks, uh, you guys. And I've missed, but I had to go on a European booze cruise slash train ride. Just had to. Just had to. Whereabouts did you go? So the uh, the journey started in Londres um, around seven o'clock in the morning. What a train to Brussels! Um, then missed our connection, so we had a few pints in in Brussels, which is really nice, very nice little city. Mm-hmm. Um, then we got went to Cologne, stayed there again for about an hour, and then off to Munich for Oktoberfest, which was pretty exciting. Ooh. Then to Pilsen over in the Czech Republic, a pretty strange town. Wouldn't recommend it. But is that where Pilsen comes from? That is exactly where Pilsner comes from. And one of the things you can do in Pilsen is have a bath in beer, which I fully would recommend. So if you're in Pilsen, wow. go and have a bath in beer. Cleanses the body, cleanses the mind, and gets you ready to have a big night out in Prague, <laughs> Dave, which, was a, which was a lot <laughs> to drink more beer. Dave, did you bathe in beer? Exactly. Yeah, I did. And that's why I've got very supple skin at the moment, Lawrence. If you were to you know, stroke my hand, you'd really, you could feel the, the ales, the, the lagers, you know, everything. Do you smell them? Really? It's a bit stinky. So have you ever been on a brewery tour? Um, Adam has. Adam went to the Guinness factory, didn't you, Adam? I've been to the Heineken factory as well. I've been to all the Guinness. It's a bit bit yeasty, it smells like. So it was a bit like sitting in a a tub of yeast. It was really weird. We were like, it was two of me, me and two of my mates. And basically like these wooden tubs. And next to it, you have Mm. like um, a barrel with a a beer tap on the top. And literally you walk through the doors and there's, there's your beer bath and then the barrel with a beer ready to go. And you just sit in this bath for 20 minutes drinking a beer. It's an interesting experience. I quite enjoyed it. And the, the, the purpose is, the outcome is that your skin is softer. Or yeah, I think, so a drunk. byproduct of, um, of brewing beer, you know, one of them is Marmite. That's the real bottom bit. But then you can get like, I think the next layer or the next few layers, you get salts and stuff, which is good right. for you, which is obviously good for your skin. So the Czechs have been mm-hmm. doing this for years. Dave, you're saying it's like, it's like bathing in the Red Sea or something? Yeah, it's a bit like that, you know. Is it, you're bathing in the Brown Sea is what you're saying, Dave. Yeah, the brown, exactly the brown sea, Lawrence. And obviously, if you have too many kebabs, October fest, it does become the brown sea. Oh God! So how many in, <laughs> in Dave, in your uh, on your European booze? How many how many pints did you have? Oh, how many we talking? 
So the big day was uh, the, the day we went to Oktoberfest and we were told by, by some locals from the a university that you've got to get there at nine o'clock or it's going to be really full because we went on the German uh, reunification day. Um, so we get there at 9 p.m., uh, 9 a.m., sorry, and we're sat in this tent absolutely freezing. It's absolutely cold. You can see your own breath. Um, and from that point, we just thought, we've got to get on here. So from that time, it was constant boozing till around 11 p.m., so we're talking something like 11 masses, which is the equivalent of about 22 pints. Oh, my God. How are you walking at the end? I wasn't, Adam. I wasn't. Right. right. D- Dave, oh. stumbling. Was this normal for European people? Or is this sort of like, you know... <laughs> I, think it's, like, I think it's normal for English people to get a bit crazy Octopus, but it was quite funny. It was like we were, we were like animals in a zoo where everyone around us was just watching what we were doing. It was a bit, it got a bit like a bit too much at some points where, you know, there was quite a lot of eyes watching us having fun, really. We didn't cause any offence or any harm. We just had, had a few cats, <laughs> ate some meat. And it, was, it was brilliant. Did you see, did you see Xabi Alonso there, Dave? Unfortunately not. No, I saw, I think the, the Bayern team went on the Sunday. Uh. So that was when we were in an Irish bar called Ned Kelly's all day. I think actually, no, that's the Australian part. I think it's called O'Reilly's is the Irish part and Ned yeah. Kelly's is the Australian I was going to say, bar. that's an interesting name for an Irish bar. <laughs> it's glorious. It's an absolute glorious bar. We went to the Bob Marley, bar. which of course is an American pub. <laughs> of course. Exactly. Of course. Right? <laughs> well, Dave, it sounds like you had a fantastic time. It was great to have really you back. Does. Just in time to, to bring some tactical analysis back to the pub. We're talking but, about but, England. But, but, Dave, 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 Dave's changed his, his Twitter name, haven't you, Dave? He's talking about yes. stats. Stats now, Lawrence. Statman Dave. Um, officially. Um, is, officially is it public knowledge why that's happened Dave uh, not, not yet it will be revealed on Wednesday's podcast so stay tuned <sighs> oh exciting stuff you, tune in then you uh, bastard Dave that's excellent but now though uh, as I said we're talking England we're talking Wales uh, we're talking the international fixtures we've got some interesting news to get into uh, including Enna Valencia corruption in football uh, and Jonathan Wilson is going to be on the pod later on he was Oof. Uh, our guest this week talking about Liverpool. It's been one year since Jurgen Klopp moved to Anfield. Um, so we spoke to him earlier in the week. There's also a fantastic documentary made by our very own Lawrence McKenna, uh, as well as uh, our Woo! good friend Glenn Cowie up on TFR on the Football Public. Go and check it out if you haven't already. Uh, it's an in-depth look at the Klopp's tactics and how he's how he's changed the club in the last 12 months. I wouldn't say it's in-depth, Jonathan, but yeah. I'd say it's pretty in-depth. Um, in comparison to, to most stuff. Um, yeah, and in, I mean, in comparison, to, in comparison to maybe an article on 101 Great Goals or something, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, before we get to all that good stuff, though, we've got to talk about England, of course. Um, every football fan's favourite time of the year, International Week. 2-0 win over Malta. Gareth Southgate's first game in charge. Lawrence, pretty straightforward in the end, but he was getting some criticism. Um, not bold enough, the team you put out. Rooney should have been dropped. I mean, do you think it's it's justified that criticism or should we give Gareth Southgate a bit of an easier time after his first game? He's also an interim manager. I, don't I mean, I just find it unusual. People just get... I get the analysis, but no one went in hard on Big Sam when he won 1-0. I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah, I don't even... Well, why is Gareth Southgate all of a sudden getting it? You feel a bit like Gareth Southgate's one of the people who just stumbles from problem to problem. Even when he's not trying to get to it, it just sort of like people just sort of go, let's give Gareth a hard time. And you're like, why? Just let him. I mean, what did you think of the the performance itself? Because obviously 2-0, it was pretty comfortable. Maybe it should have been uh, 4 or 5-0, a few chances wasted, and the keeper made some some great saves. Exactly. 
it can across see. The, the, the problem the problem so often with these things is and sorry to cut you off but it, it does come across a little bit that, so you know because we're so used to in the Premier League at the moment sort of taking the manager's personality and putting that onto the team so Pep Guardiola is innovative suddenly the players are all you know um, enriched Conte he's intense his players are intense but his methods are a bit outmoded Klopp he's you know all these sort of things um Klopp, you know, he's, he's, he's got so much energy, he's angry. The Liverpool team are exactly the same. So it's very difficult to sort of see where you get your inspiration from with Gareth Southgate. And so a solid performance becomes a dry or tepid performance. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I know. It's, he did get a fair amount of criticism with Dave for, for starting Wayne Rooney. It's clear he's got faith in him. He kept him on as the captain, obviously started him, and he's probably going to start again uh, against Slovenia in the qualifier on Tuesday. So there seems to be the criticism of the, the the bland performance came from a lack of adventure on Gareth Southgate's part. He should have been bold enough to drop Rooney, for instance. I mean, would you agree with that? Or do you think Rooney still has a, a role to play in this England team? No, I don't think he has a role anymore. I think it's time to move on, right? It's time to, to get away from the, the Rooney England days. I think Man United have, have shown in, in recent weeks they've the performance have been so much better without Wayne Rooney in the side. So I think England should probably go the same way. I think there's some players in there that, like you know, like Ross Barkley, who potentially needs to make a few mistakes at that level um, to to improve himself. You know, make those wrong decisions. Hopefully, can get him in the way of pushing forward because he's another player that has been around this England squad. You know, Gary Neville said this week the reason why we went with Barkley over the likes of um, Mark Noble or you know any other informed player was because we've been working with Ross Barkley for X amount of time. We've been trying to push him forward. Ross Barkley still is stuck between three positions is he a 10 is he a six or is he a eight he's not a 10 for me he's not smart enough I don't think he has the the vision in the penalty area. he gets very, a lot of tunnel vision when he's in and around the penalty area sucked in you know he's in his own self he wants to do it himself or is he a number six is he dropping mm. deeper we've not seen him play that role yet but then you're going down the same way where you've got an attacking player that's moving to play like a Jack Wilshire position in a way that Jack Wilshire hasn't even mastered for me where Ross Barkley should be played, potentially be played is a number nine up front but going away from the point I think players like that need the opportunity over Wayne Rooney do you, do you agree with that Lawrence that maybe Gareth Southgate should be more experimental with a team like this drop him Rooney bring in likes of Barkley or do you think there is the suspicion that he's almost damned if he does damned doesn't if he exactly. had to play Barkley, he would have got criticism for, oh, well, you know, what are you doing this for? I guess more, you know, why aren't we playing more experienced players? I feel like either way, Gareth Southgate, like you say, he's, he's stuck with this label of being boring, of being bland, and either way, they're going to use that as a stick to be in with. I think there's also things that we maybe overlook is, you know, betting in a back, uh, back four with relatively inexperienced international players, um, obviously led by Gary Cahill, People overlook the idea that Joe Hart's gone away from England, um, and so there's going to be a big change there. Maybe he's not rolling with the same level of player. Um, Jordan Henderson obviously still playing a slightly different position that I find interesting, um, and how he's sort of taken that from the club side. I don't think enough people are maybe giving him credit for the details because the broad brushstrokes of England seem to be wrong right now, and because the bigger vision is bad, people you know tend to just pick out the things they don't enjoy so much. Um, mm. It, 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 there are there are things in there that seem fairly conventional from him. I'm not saying he's innovated in any way, but I think for someone who's probably only had a few weeks to think about this, uh, I'd still call it a solid start, if not an inspiring one. Um, mm. And again, he's an interim manager. I don't think he's been brought in to make massive changes. I think he's been brought in to keep the ship steady. Um, and it's you know fair play to him. You know England England at home granted to Malta one two nil. But, you know, he started... Jess Lingard's out there. You know, uh, mm. Theo Walcott got minutes under his belt. I'm looking for positives in that. 
Marcus Rashford came onto the pitch. You know, th- there's lots of good what? things about. I think sometimes people just want to criticise for the. You know, I don't know. Have you seen that meme recently where it's the one where there are two people on the camel, uh, two people on the donkey, and there's two guys in the distance who go, "God, those people don't know how to treat a donkey." So the guy gets off the donkey. And then, um, and then the two people from the distance go, God, that guy uh, gives his wife too much importance. So then he takes the wife off and he puts right. himself on. And then they're like, God, you're so selfish. You, let, you make your wife walk. And then they both get off the donkey and walk together. And then the two people from the distance say, um, oh, I can't believe, can't believe you guys don't know how to use a donkey at all. And so I think you're right in saying, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But there's deeper detail in that, that it's sort of mm. damned if he does one thing, damned if he does another thing, and even more damned if he does something even more. And then there's, <laughs> all, you know, it's also sort of goes down the route of if he had have brought a load of youth in, like people were expecting him to, and he had tried to bed them in and then only won 2 0, people would have gone, well, you know, we could have won, five, you know, a normal England performance will be a 5 0 here. And it's yeah. Gareth Southgate that's holding the team back. Uh, you know, he's he's taking the next manager should be the one to bed them in. So his ego and he's trying to impress the FA, etc. You know, there's so many people. I feel like fucking journalists would rather have a story that they've crafted um, and then they can tell than trying to maybe give the insight or just the facts and, let, and then maybe letting other people decide. Well, I mean, you're Round talking over. about the positives before talking about the positives of the game one of the big positives of course the man of the match was Jordan Henderson who's becoming more influential of course for Liverpool as well as England some people uh, saying that he should perhaps be the captain ahead of Wayne Rooney mm-hmm. for example I mean what have you made of the way he's improved over the past couple of years and the way he's matured he certainly shouldn't be the captain ahead of anyone else I think England should be waiting for their next captain uh, he's definitely captain at Liverpool which is fantastic um, for him but maybe mm. you know maybe not everyone He's one that, you know, Gerard wrote uh, that, that piece or gave some quotes to a piece uh, that was about, you know, don't compare him to Gerard just because he plays in Liverpool's midfield, <laughs> not even in the same position. Um, you know, people automatically compare him. I think, I think it's just a little bit unfair. He's a, he's a player within his own right and he was sort of brought in that way to almost play alongside mm. Gerard at that point by Kenny Dalglish. So he's a player in his own right. Um, I'm, I'm impressed with what he's managed to do with Klopp and I think Klopp has done a lot with him, but... Number six, I don't think he's the best player in that position. Um, and I think in many ways, again, it sort of feels like Dave was saying, we're still trying to make space for the likes of Rooney in this team. Yeah, I mean, Dave did, I know you didn't see the performance last night because you were you were travelling back, but in terms of Jordan Henson, he was pulling the strings um, for England last night. I mean, he has improved massively uh, in the past year or so since taking on that captain's role at Liverpool. Yeah, I think he's. Well, I think it's his improvement has maybe not has been very, very recent. You'd say in the last maybe mm. six, seven. How many Premier League games have we had this season? So you'd say maybe the first few games was probably wasn't should know the that. Statman Dave, shouldn't you? <sighs> Lawrence McKenna sometimes. Man. I mean, if you can't even get the basic <laughs> stats right, man, <laughs> fucking hell. So you know, come into maybe like week two into the Premier League, Liverpool not really rocking of sorts uh, you know the 2-0 Burnley defeat that's I'd say week three in the Premier League was when it changed when it changed for Jordan Henderson when it changed for Liverpool and the form was together it wasn't separate thing and it was you know credit to Jordan Henderson and maybe it's the, the right time for Jordan Henderson to put his name on a shirt you know we've had so many English midfielders that have been stuck between so many different positions that now it is time for Jordan Henderson to go look you know I'm at the, I'm at the age now that it's time for me to say I'm going to be a number six and I'm going to watch these wonderful number six we have in world football. And that is what I'm going to be. 
give yourself that role. Sometimes you're given roles by coaches, managers, and, and that becomes the player. Other times the player has to know himself what he wants to be. Very if deep. he wants to be a central midfielder, either an eight or six, and he's not going to be a 10. So it's either eight or six. Days. Liverpool have too many eights. So for me, Henderson being a six fixes a lot of problems for England and Liverpool. D- Dave, who else has played six well in the world? Like if, Jordan, if, if Henderson can look at another person who's played a position well, who would you go for in six? Because when you say six, like, there, there are very few players spring to mind. So with a six, like the, the classic six is uh, Pirlo towards the end of his career where he played in front of the Juventus back three. Or you could look at Marquisio at, um, at, Real, at Real Madrid, sorry, at Juventus as well. Um, they're two really good examples of, of how it is really applied in a concrete manner if you want to see a, what a number six is. You know, coming towards the centre-backs, picking up the ball, turning and playing forward passes. That's kind of the role of the number six, to spread the play, to always be on the ball. In a way, Paul Scholes was a number six at Manchester United, how he controlled games. But in a slightly, di- you know, a slightly further up the pitch in his heyday, then he did drop back and did become that number six. So, again... It's uh, it's an interesting evolution of Jordan Henderson if he does to do this. He's 26 years old. It is time now for him to pick a position, to pick a shirt number. And this seems like, for me, the right number for me. He's almost 30, mm. mate. I mean, Jesus, that's five times six. He's nearly done, isn't he? He's nearly 30. Jesus. He's almost finished. He's almost over um, the hill, Adam. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see who does start then against Slovenia on Tuesday if it is Henderson alongside Rooney. Does Dyer come back in? Now he's available. Um, be interesting to see who gets dropped. But... Uh, before that, Wales, of course, were playing as well, Dave. Uh, drew with Georgia this evening, a disappointing uh, draw. I mean, what have you made of Wales in their, their qualifying campaign so far? They're still top of the group, but it's a bit of a blow for them. Yeah, it's, it's a big blow for them. They they looked very, very good um, in the game tonight against Georgia. They looked very good in the first half, exceptional in the first half. Look, they were in full control of the game. Gareth Bale was rocking. He was dominating the... Um, the opposition's back four, whether the ball was at his feet, whether he was shooting from range, whether he was charging at them, whether he was jumping in the area. Like, he's so dominant. I find him such an inter- interesting player. Again, he's an evolution of a winger. He is a target man and he's a winger. He's as quick as anything. He's powerful. He can take you on, can hit the ball from distance. But also, he gets into penalty area and scores goals. He scored more goals than any player in Europe's top five leagues in the last two seasons. But then he takes that to the international level. You look at the goal, look at the jump that he took on that. It's absolutely perfect. But then Wales lost control in the game. And could be a bit of a problem for them. They were missing their two best central midfielders, you'd say, in Joe, um, Joe Allen and uh, Aaron Ramsey. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a bit of a lightweight midfield in there. You know, Andy King is a decent player. Dave Edwards is a decent player. But they're nowhere near the level of, of those two that I mentioned before. And they kind of had to, when Wells uh, conceded their goal, they had to kind of go for it. And Chris Coleman p- pulled the right sorts of moves, but it didn't quite work for him. Like, he put David Cottrell uh, left wing back. Cottrell is right-footed. And he's been a winger all of his career. Did not have a clue in terms of his position. And then the Jord, uh, Jordans, is that correct? George, 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 yeah, George, yeah. George, 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 the George, 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 Place for Empoli, but I can't think of what his name is. No, it's gone. But yeah, he should have scored. So they potentially mm. should have lost this game. They just need to keep that control. I feel like the three central midfielders or the three central players that they play in there has to stay and they need to rotate the rest of the unit around there. Um, but again, it's been a very good start for them. They've picked up five points in three games. That is going well. The group is very open. Obviously, Ireland again um, picking up a really good win away at, at Moldova. I watched the Irish game as well against Georgia. 
Ireland, compared to this Welsh team that I'm really excited about how they play football, God, Ireland are terrible. They are so like Tony Tulas. <laughs> they they punt the ball into the channels, and they they run. You know that's kind of it. But it, it works, and it, you, I can't really criticise them too much. But it is the group is very open. Obviously, Serbia top, Ireland second, Wales in third, Austria in fourth, mm. uh, and then Georgia and Moldova. So it's in a very exciting group, and Austria as well a very good side. Watch them on uh, Wednesday night. Daval Alaba um, and was just pulling the strings in, in central midfield. And Naltovic had a very, very good game, but obviously he's very inconsistent. So I think the problem with the Austrian team is they don't have a focal point up front, whether it is an Altovic or it is Jenko through the middle. That, you know, also Alaba. Bitsa, they need to, to Alaba. They need Alaba. to pick it. Crosses to Alaba. Alaba! That's the problem. Hmm. Alaba is, is playing this, this ball-playing role in, in central midfield and he really is rocking. He's controlling the game, but he needs just something else with him in a way. Like he needs something ahead of him to play the... The ball to obviously Sabitzer, a player for Red Bull Leipzig, who I've watched a lot this season, is a very talented player. But again, it's a bit hot and cold, a little bit like an Altovic. So it's like they just need one of these players to become more consistent. I think it might be Sabitzer because he is the younger player. He's 22 years old and he has the talent to do that. So again, this Austrian team, not ready yet. This Welsh team is flying. Do you think, uh, so from the groups, it's the, the, the winner automatic qualifiers and the eight best runners up uh, are facing a two-leg playoff to get through. Do you think, in terms of that group, is it going to be Austria? who you think are the main threat to, to Wales then, or can Ireland maybe, although you're saying how, you're describing how limited they are. <laughs> no, they I challenge, think or is it? Definitely a three-horse, uh, a four-horse race for those two positions. I still think that. Serbia, although they did, you know, they won today, Mitrovic scored mm. twice, but then you look at Mitrovic's goal-scoring record for Newcastle this season, he's only scored one goal, so he scored more goals for Serbia than he has Newcastle this season, which is pretty incredible. And again, they have quite inconsistent players, you know, uh, Tardic, who on his day is absolutely unplayable, but then he'll, he'll go missing. So I think there's, there's, with this group, there's a lot of hit-or-miss sides. So that, you know, out of those four teams, Serbia, Ireland, Wales and Austria, they're so, so open. I think it's going to be Wales are going to top the group, then I'm going to go with Austria. And I feel Serbia and Ireland are going to drop out. Yeah, it's just like Donald Trump says. You, someone's just got to grab that group by the push and just sort of, you mm. know, push it <laughs> over the line. Nice. Yeah. That was, you, you got that in Smoothie Lawrence. Yeah, I, like, I, know. I, like I mean, that. that's my point, Adam, Adam. We need somehow to get the clicks up on the podcast. So we need to start yeah. referencing just, We can get, uh, now get Trump in the title now. Yeah. You know, um, all that sort of stuff. What about grab, um, the, grab the World Cup qualifiers by the Fine. Yeah, <laughs> England grabbed the world. England, yeah, brilliant. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic. He's in. He's in. I tell you what, if uh, Donald Trump doesn't make it uh, in the American election, he could manage England. He could. Oh God, he'd bring a steeliness. I think he'd bring a, a resolve. He's got more. Um, he's definitely believes in himself more than potentially Gareth Southgate. He's got. Uh, I mean, that's uh, kind of the point. Is actually Donald Trump em- embodies everything that uh, all the English media keep pushing. He's a little bit of Alan Pardew. He's a yeah, little bit of Harry I mean, if we uh, sort of smashed all the managers together, he's got, he's got, carries a little bit of weight like Sam Allardyce. He loves his cars. He loves his women. Um, if, if Sam Allardyce lasted, how long did Sam Allardyce last? 67 uh, days. Yeah, I think Donald Trump would last six or seven hours. And put it this way, I think, I think uh, Adam, I mean, what you're overlooking here is the, the possibility that um, A, he will bring in some incredible deals and B, England will never concede again from free kicks because he's just great at building walls. It's true. Very true. Very nice. <laughs> Although, Lawrence, would he build a, a wall from through the, the Midlands to, to lock off the top, top northern teams? 
I mean, you know, and then build England around the, the southern teams. And the, the it's southern a scary thought. That's right. I mean, no, but, but the thing is, he won't, Dave, because he actually he needs to be able to get Scotland to be able to play golf, which famously Harry Redknapp oh, loves. Point. So he'll be able yeah. to he'll be able to canoodle with already the best managers in the world, another top that's international manager, by the way, <laughs> um, and and he'll be able to get the best out of the England team. Making Not only that, scary logical. If, if we throw, if we throw Peter Crouch back up front. We will yet yes. again erect another Trump Tower. <laughs> I mean, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. Guys, no, no, said it. England and um, and the England England would have a good World Cup song. It would be we're going to grab this tournament by the. Right. I just feel the the need to apologise for the free language. Did, I, I'm going to beat um, that. Don't worry. Sorry, Mom. Did did that throw you off a little bit there, Adam? I'll bleep it, don't worry. No, I really enjoyed the theory. I think you put together a strong um, hypothesis there. And he may well be looking for a job in November, so it makes sense. And put it this way, Um, Adam. um, I mean, you know, England players, some of them are racists, some of them are killers, and some of them, I'm sure, are very good people. I bet they'd enjoy the the locker room banter as well. I'm sure they would. Um, (laughs) Trump just coming in. You'll never guess who I f***. Last night. <laughs> Although he's, he's a changed man, that guy. He's a changed man. That's that was the him of ten years ago when he was, you know, fifty-five or whatever. Wayne, um, thanks for the off, Dave. International week, international week. You have got a theory. Now, would you care to explain this to the, li- hmm. the good listeners? So I was sat drinking a cup of tea on my sofa, watching Wales versus Georgia, and it just came to my head that has Louis van Gaal, again, revolutionised football oh God. in what? the way in the 90s where he revolutionised football in terms of ball retention, in terms of playing a very structured system that gets you results. It may not be the most exciting, but it gets you results. It's you know, the inverse of what Tony Pulis does at West Brom. It's pretty boring, but it gets results. Because when he went to the World Cup with Netherlands, everyone expected Netherlands to be absolutely rubbish. Everyone out there didn't know how they were going to play. They just lost Kevin Strootman. It was all going downhill. He goes to the tournament and whips out a counter-attacking 3-5-2. It makes sense. It makes sense in terms of the coverage that the, the centre-backs have because they weren't very good 1v1 defenders. It gives them three in midfield, so they're never going to get out-muscled in there. They've got two wing-backs that are good going forward, but defensively are quite poor. Again, the three centre-backs help that out. And they've got a wide forward as a striker who's going to roam to the left, roam to the right, Iron Robin, who was one of the players of the World Cup. So Van Gaal does this in 2014. And what we're seeing from this Welsh side is that a counter-attacking 3-5-2, where, the, you know, where the sum of the parts isn't as good as everything together, in a way. Like when they combine, they become a team, they are massively more. You, know, you look at that back five, there's two players that play in the championship in there. You go into midfield, there's a championship player and two players that are, play for average Premier League teams. But what they've, they've created with this Welsh team is this 3-5-2 that has it all and has so much there. But it is so like this Dutch team, so like... Holland in 2014. And I just feel like potentially Louis van Gaal has started a new phase of international football. Which That's is, my theory. Which is what? Is that a terrible... Is, is a counter-attack... Playing counter, a counter-attacking attacking style in a 3-5-2 will get you results in international football. I don't know, Matt. I mean, don't, don't you think Italy... I feel like he's more m- remembering stuff from the past than sort of... Um, trying to do anything revolutionary do you think he's just sort of done it at the right time but that's what i mean i feel like this this is that's because the 352 playing the way they do uh, you know could be practiced and, and over and over again in qualifying then you've got it on the stage 
does it seem like Louis van Gaal potentially, you know, t- teams have been playing defensive systems for a long time, but this this three five two coming back into the, the main trend, yes, it was with Juventus, but in a way, has Louis van Gaal really pushed it forward and then pushed on international football where, you know, look at Spain today, they've completely changed. They're now potentially playing a 3-4-3, three, th- three, three, um, you know, going away from the 4-3-3 the three, three that they've played for so many years. You know, there is a new phase coming together. And I'm just, you know, is Louis van Gaal the star? Is he the star of this new way to play in the international football? No? Is no. this a load of shit? Uh, have I, I, mean, been, I, don't, I, don't, have I um, drank too much in the past week? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he's... Hmm, I'm trying to work... Because I don't know... Hmm, I don't know if he's the one who started that, though. Mm, this is the thing. He may not be the one. That, he may have seen it from somebody else pulling that manoeuvre. I was trying to think of teams that played a 3-5-2 the same way that they did and that Wales are doing now. Potentially chilly, but that's you know much more intense and much more pressing. Same with someone like Mexico that played a back three. So I just couldn't think of a team that played the back three like Louis van Gaal did and now know how Wales are doing, playing that way. If anyone, that, you know, any listeners to the podcast, if they can come at an international side that's been in recent memory, so maybe in the last 10 years it's played how Holland did and how Wales are playing in a way, tweet us at the front three. Mm. Good man. Destroy that theory or, or prove it. Yeah, correct. kill it. Rip it apart. Tell me a new one. It'll be fine. Maybe give us. Interesting. I mean, that, I, mean I like that. Maybe just give us some examples or counter examples. Yeah. yeah, that'd be great. Mm. Love a great debate. As well as some actual football, there's been some interesting happenings this international week yeah. off the pitch. Has to be said. Some interesting incidents, none more so than one involving Enna Valencia, Lawrence. Perhaps the most bizarre. Uh, news this week. I mean, for those who aren't familiar with it, would you care to explain just what happened? Enna Valencia is a footballer, um, which is why we're covering it on the podcast. Um, And uh, he went back to play an international game uh, with Ecuador. And so he returns back and it turns out that he has um, some previous with a woman who now says that he owes her child support. And so he's refusing to pay what is now $17,000 worth of child support, which doesn't sound like very much, um, especially not to a footballer. And so the police have an arrest warrant to be able to go and get him and then get the money from him, or at least try to, I guess, after the match. Because I guess what they wanted to avoid was, you know, that people maybe would riot or sort of be angry or, you know, sort of cause any uh, negativity towards the person who's trying to get the money. So come the late stages of the game, suddenly he's magically injured, having actually played apparently very well. And he falls and needs gas and air to get off the pitch. So on comes the little car, the little uh, like golf buggy. And that's the, that's the point at which he gets on the back. And then you can play the Benny Hill music as he gets wheeled off the pitch mm. and the police begin, that's, that was the meme, and the police begin, begin to chase after him. And he goes to the Chasing. hospital, he goes to the hospital where his lawyer has gotten for him a counter, um, a counter uh, uh, injunction from the court, which means that they can't arrest him. And he was apparently <sighs> just buying himself time so that the, the lawyer could get this. Oh God! Brilliant. It, 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 it's, it's the thing is, it's Absolutely ridiculous mental. because he goes down for the gas and air, and that's what the funny bit is: is that all the police are sort of chasing after him as fast as they can, but oh. no one seems to be able to catch up with the the very very quick and also uh, for somehow <laughs> on his side 
um, medical staff. Uh, it's even yeah, planned, you know, like someone was waiting. That's got to be like one of the most ridiculous things ever on a football coach. That's just bizarre. Um, over child support as well. He's, he's come out um, as footballers do. He's made a statement on Instagram. He's posted a long picture up. Um, sort of describing the situation, talking about how um, talking about how he's facing several lawsuits by the mother of his child, and he's wow. now trying to to countersue, claiming he's paid a hundred thousand uh, dollars. He's paid for food. He's he's paid everything. He says it's all be verified. He's saying that he's trying to get sole custody now of his daughter. So pretty messy situation, but obviously culminated culminated in quite a, a school <laughs> situation. Why would he run? <laughs> Yeah, if he was right, why would he run? That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. Was if if he, he was right, wrong. he would. But then, I mean, yeah, there isn't really isn't a counter argument. I was trying to think of a counter argument. <laughs> but if you're right, you literally just go to them and go, "What?" <laughs> Maybe he just did it for the the bounce. He was on the banter train, jumped on, hopped on the banter bus. He was on the banter bus. Yes, maybe a football on, on the banter wagon. I do this. Um, we also had this week uh, Messi being described as the man who knows everything. Lawrence, um, the new Argentina coach took over from Tata Martino in the summer. Edgardo Bowser said that Messi knows everything about everything, only in football, though. Unfortunately, no. Originally, um, when I when I read this, I thought it was like an insult, and I thought he was like, "Oh, Messi knows everything." Um, but it turns out it was actually just because I thought there's no way that any self-respecting manager of an international team would ever say so much about a player. <laughs> Um, I, I was disappointed because I thought he meant like, yeah, he knows everything about everything in life. Like he's some sort of omnipotent deity, just knows everything, which would have been great. But it appears he's just talking about football, Lawrence. Um, he, he knows everything about his teammates, the technical team, about football. He's aware of everything. I always thought a player of his standing would have to be a player who knew a lot about football. But it surprised me even more than that. He yeah. knows everything about everything. Nothing escapes him, he says. Um, but I suppose he's the new manager, you know, he's trying to get in the good books with the star player who he's managed to sort of convince to come out of a retirement. I mean, apparently uh, he went, he apparently <laughs> asked if he could have a meeting and then took Javier Mascherano to the meeting and then apparently it was sort of implied of after the meeting, oh, BFS. of course we'll play. Um, it's almost like he never actually retired um, and was maybe just a bit upset after a game and, you know, not maybe suggested. Went off on one. Yeah, basically. Um Neymar as well, his international teammate, Messi's international teammate, has been accused of being, is it Billy Big Bollocks he's been accused of? Billy Big Bollocks. It? Yeah, yeah. He's been accused of being mm. a Billy Big Bollocks. We all know Billy Big Bollocks. Who, uh, is it, is it, who's the Billy Big Bollocks on this, on this podcast, Dave? I don't know, actually. No, I don't think there's on this podcast, but we all know, we all know that, that lad. That lad who thinks he's it. Thinks he's, you know, sun shines out of his ass. Yeah. Well, this, yeah, I've actually yeah, right. There's no Billy Big Bollocks on this podcast. <clears throat> <laughs> this, was, this was after uh, Bolivia played Brazil. Bolivia defender Yasmani Duke uh, called him Charlie Big Bollocks, um, I should say. Not Billy Big Bollocks. Very different, Charlie Big Bollocks. Um, of course, Neymar doing his skills on the pitch, you know, doing step all this sort of stuff. Got an elbow in the face from Duke. You might have seen the pictures online bleeding uh, very heavily afterwards. He got a bit battered, I think it's fair to say. But yeah, Charlie, big bollocks player. I mean, is, Dave, what do you make of this? I mean, we've all done step-overs on the pitch. You know, we've all had... Oh, I, I would have crunched where... him. I would have broke his nose. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would have, have, I would have taken that shit. No, no way. No, Neymar, you coming, you're stepping onto my turf. 
my hometown, and you're giving me these stepovers, these flip flops, and all these elasticos. Absolutely not. Deserved it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, you deserved it. Down to a thing. I think the most, the the most obvious example of Charlie Big Bollocks player I've ever seen was was it Nani? Do you know a few years ago, played for Manchester United. All the um, headers and the Abue just go straight through. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it's like a bit ridiculous. Yeah, and of course Abue was now anyway. I think Ronaldo's done it. Remember Curlon, the guy that did the seal dribble. Have you seen any of that? If you go onto YouTube and type in Curlon seal dribble, there's one where some like big Brazilian defender literally kills him, destroys him. If you don't know what the seal literally kills him, you don't mean literally. He wipes him out. He cleans him. He's gone for like two weeks injury stretcher. Literally murdered him. The well, seal dribbles where you like bounce the ball on your head for anyone that doesn't know what it is. But it's, it's absolutely fantastic. One of my favourite videos on YouTube. Uh, Along you with folk fainting goats, just to drop that in. Uh, you know what else I like? Uh, it's the one... Um, it's Chris MD in the YouTube game, uh, the, the Wembley mm-hmm. Cup. He, first of all, loops the ball over the top of Perez's <laughs> oh, yeah. head and then loops the ball over the top of Jamie Carragher's head. And I was like, oh, you've done on, that. That's that's that. Yeah, he does them both. And you can see they're both sort of going, that is actually pretty yeah. good. Yeah, um, fair play. So it's I was like, impressed. I'll give him that. Um, talking of Charlie Big Bollocks or Billy, um, Gerard Piquet is in hot war for some of his behaviour. Um, we're not quite, it's not quite clear yet what exactly is going on, but obviously. Spain were playing this evening, uh, and we know Gerard Piquet. Uh, he's, he's a proud Catalan. You know, he's, he's spoken before about. Uh, you know, he supports the the, the notion of Catalonia being independent from Spain. Mm. So on the new Spain kit, it's the away kit. On the cuffs of the sleeves, they've got uh, essentially the, the Spanish flag, the, the red and yellow stripes of the Spanish flag. Strangely enough, on Gerard Piquet's shirt this evening, that flag was conspicuously absent into accusations that he's cut them off of his jersey. People giving him a lot of heat for this one. Some people point out that Sergio Ramos doesn't have the sleeves either, although they're saying that he's just, he's just rolled his up sort of thing. I mean, what do you make of this, Dave? Because PK, he does get hard time sometimes from, from fans thinking that he's, some of his behavior is inappropriate in a way, the way he goes about it. I mean, is this something that, that he should be allowed to do or do you think there's going to be repercussions for this or I think I think there will be repercussions um, it, it's a real interesting one in Spain isn't it the Catalonia um, Spain a... type environment but yeah it's kind of like pushing your, your political mindset onto uh, you know into an avenue where millions and millions of people are viewing that so but you're not allowed to ex- I know cutting, cutting the sleeves off your shirt or at least the yeah. cuff seems a bit extreme but should players not be allowed to express their political opinions? No, no, I, th- I think they should be allowed to express their political opinions but then equally on the other side we've got things like um, James McLean the West Bromwich Albion winger who yeah. took the poppy off his shirt which uh, you know again very disrespectful to a certain a lot of people and got, that got a lot of stick so it, I don't know if it's as bad as that. You know, I'm not, I'm not massively into my Catalonian history. It's not one of the, my pastimes. Um, but, you know, if it's seen as a, as a way like that, where, you know, potentially people have died or there's been some pretty horrible stuff that have come with that or it's a symbol of something, you know, I think we're, to us, for us to give it a, a proper opinion on, on this matter, could we could be, you know, we could misinform the listeners and we don't want to do mm. that because we'll get an absolute ass kicking. I mean, do what you- do you think, look? I'm just going to say, Lawrence, not on the specifics of, of Catalonia and that whole debate, but in terms of a player being able to 
express their political opinion. I mean, we've seen in America, um, is it Colin Colin Kaepernick? He's, he was coming yeah. under all sorts of fire for he was refusing to stand. He was kneeling for the national anthem. And like they were saying, some people took that as a, an insult against the military uh, and, and against the nation. Uh, should players be allowed to express themselves in this way? Or do you think it's something that needs to be, I assume, he's going to be clamped down on and he's going to face repercussions for it, if indeed it is found out that he did cut the cut the cuffs off his sleeves? Um, I mean, I mean, I suppose Ronaldo has actually personalised his kit before, but not for any political reasons. Um, I suppose you're not really our political messages, but then you... The problem is you could actually consider international flags as political messages because of what that nation represents um you could consider the overall kit a, a message because spain playing red anyway um so it's really a very small sort of political gesture in a sense or a political um strike um you, there's a lot of things that players do you you're, it's almost a myopic thing to get in for this because it's it's a political um, decision to go with Nike ahead of Adidas. It's a political decision to go and play for Spain in the first place because you know if you truly believe in the cause, would you want to represent your nation? Or, uh, you know, Germany players went through a similar thing when the when the two sides weren't unified. Um, a number of people sort of go through this. So I I personally think people should be allowed to make that sp- speech, but the, the problem is that maybe I agree with the fact that. Um, people should be allowed to have a say, but I, I definitely would feel different if someone had, say, etched a, um, a political side that they agree with. So, you know, for instance, if someone had put, you know, Trump 2016 on it, I might feel like that was a little bit too far, maybe, because hmm. I disagree with it. Or if someone had put, like, you know, a swastika on uh, a German kit or something, then if they believe that, or, you know, if players... I mean, you know, the, the problem is also there are tattoos out there. Uh, that players play with. I mean, you know, Di Canio has played with some incredibly offensive tattoos. A, a few other players have. Um, so it's, it's really how far do you want to go? And this all, all seems like a very minor detail mm. in something. Um, but for him, it probably means quite a lot. For, for some people in Spain and Casonia especially, it probably does mean quite a lot. So I wouldn't say I'm against it. I always think bigger systems should be used for using for, for you know amplifying smaller people's voices. Um, and you know, and the fact is. I, it probably is a storm in the teacup, and it also Adidas probably won't mind it. And at the same time, <laughs> probably nor nor do the Spanish national team because you know if he wants to play for them, and he's probably earned the right to uh, express his own views because of what he's done for that side. Then let him do it because he mm. he's he's earned the right to do so through what he's done for them. It's interesting where where you draw the line. I wonder whether FIFA will come down this because obviously there's certain regulations against certain flags being carried into ground. They, they're very keen to avoid any sort of you know incendiary. But that's uh, what I find. That's what I find. In, in, that's what I find interesting, Adam. Is that actually they do seem to have made you're making an inherent political decision by saying that you're not allowed to carry specifically a Kosovo flag well, into to, the side. They're not trying to avoid. You know what you're saying about you know you might agree with certain messages or disagree or some political messages are, are more popular than others in a way. Mm-hmm. Where do you draw the line in terms of do you just ban all political statements? Of, of but the, the, the problem is you can't because that's what I'm saying. Is in, in, inter- in international football, everything is a political message because inherently politics happen on an international level and there are going to be different relations between countries. But my problem with, say, banning the Kosovo flag um, in that particular instance is that some people consider the reason that the Kosovo flag exists is because they managed to get a, they managed to escape and fight back against the Serbian mm. genocide. 
Um, at, it wasn't specific Serbia, it was sort of the genocide that went down in that area, and there's a specific problem that goes on with Serbia. So, um, excuse me if I'm wrong on that detail. But I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the point is also then that uh, Serbia are only, the only, one of the only countries that sort of um, were against Kosovo becoming an international country uh, and a recognised country by FIFA. So, do you then say that well, you know, bringing a Serbian flag into the stadium is is a political message? Um, you know, there's all sorts of levels that that works on and all sorts of levels that you have to consider it. And I think it's very myopic and very small-minded to say that there are only some which are political messages and some which aren't. Um, you know, essentially, you could you could say, you know, um, you know the, the Premier League not letting everyone watch football in England who can't afford to is a political message. There's all sorts of things that could be considered a political message. I just think it's people at the top who control... Yeah. Or try to control the way that we view that. Mm. Well, speaking of regulation in football, really, there's an interesting series going on on The Guardian right now that they've just published uh, about corruption in football. It's a two-part series. The first part is up. We'll post a link in the description. Just go and give it a read. Very interesting stuff, Lawrence. But essentially, it's talking about the game being endemically corrupt. Specifically, this part is looking at football transfers and how agents and lawyers and academics are involved in that. I mean, have you given it a read? And what did you make of it all? I gave it a read. I thought it was a really interesting read. It's definitely worth going over and taking a look at. Um, there's a lot of... There's, I think, from a... If you're inside the, the football bubble, then you look at it from, you know, how can I get, I get the best football out of this? But I do think there's some really interesting... Uh, political messages, again, probably coming out in this, which are kind of along the lines of, this is also a labour market. Um, and how do you choose to analyse it? Through which lens do you put football? And as a labour market, it's probably not a very good one right now, um, because you know some people believe that they're getting a raw end of the deal because essentially it's running more just so people make money rather than um, maybe get a fair deal. So it's definitely worth um, g- going and getting um, a, a wider view on it. And I think it's a good start to a conversation. I don't know what you guys think, but I'm I'm interested in how if we change this if we change transfers in the first place, which is what FIFA are trying to do, a couple of other people are trying to do. So essentially it won't be about transfer fees. It'll be more about the movement of players and labour and therefore it'll change the way that clubs invest in talent and those sort of things because, say, agents won't get fees or agents won't get the same fees or clubs won't get fees at all because players will not be subject or held by a contract. So essentially, you know, say, Adam, I wanted to move from, um, you know, the Football Republic back to Football Daily... Uh, would Football Daily sort of owe you guys something uh, if I'd signed a contract with TFR? Mm. Um, Transfer fees. Uh, you know, and that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's actually very rare. I mean, sometimes you'll get sort of uh, remediance or whatever. Or, you know, you'll get re- um, sort of reconciled for what you've um, invested. But, you know, it's a very sort of crude way of looking at it. But it it could completely change the way that talent moves in football because a player may not have to... And, you know, we've seen it in the past is that actually people like John Henry sort of stood up to it when, you know, Arsenal bid a 40 million and a pound. He was like, these contracts mean nothing. No one really cares about them. It doesn't really matter. Um, so it's interesting um, mm. because I'm wondering how much of it is more just a gentleman's agreement and more about moving money rather than actually sort of the morals of the game. And I think people are questioning where money and the morals of the game cross over. It's it's interesting. It's extremely illuminating reading it. It's very interesting to see all the, the the intricacies of how certain transfers work and where this corruption stems from. And especially we're seeing in the Telegraph as well their whole sting operation, of course, which took down Sam Allardyce, also implicated uh, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, 
you know, the, the FA is said to be looking into this. They've got the police involved in some of those claims. It just seems like reading it, it's also, it, it kind of feels like the Wild West, like anything goes. No one's really regulating the game. Um, and the suggestion is that football sort of self-regulated. It looks after itself. Do you think there needs to be more oversight, though, Dave? There needs to be some sort of independent commission or someone set up to sort of look into all this stuff. FIFA and, or UEFA, say. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> You'd think that, wouldn't you? Um, but obviously, even above that, because the corruption seems to permeate every level of the game, obviously uh, of different severity, Um you know, in certain positions. But we've had that. Other people have looked into it and they've gone back to those bodies which have commissioned it and gone, yes, you are. You have inherent corruption in your organisation. And they've gone, yeah, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll deal with it. And then those people have been like, well, then what was the fucking point in the in, in the whole mm. report in the first place? Because you, you do wonder out where all the, the names. Obviously, there's no appetite for the change or to really make the system... Uh, transparent and make the system fair from from the top. Yeah, and it doesn't seem to be. I know there's a lot of hand wringing in the media, and a lot of criticism, but it doesn't seem to be a massive hunger even among general football fans for for the game to be cleaned up. In a sense, it feels like we all know how corrupt FIFA is. We, we've seen all the reports, and we understand, you know, just how how dark some of it is. But yet, nothing seems to change. I mean, what what would make it change? Would it be if fans stood up and made more demonstrations, made more examples of what, what, of what they wanted and they wanted change. Is that what something that would make it change or are we just, is it all going to be the same? I think it's very, it's, it's sort of very unfair to sort of put it to the fans to do that because actually the no, people running course. the clubs, I mean, I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but I, I, you know, very often it is sort of, we mistake. Of course there's no appetite in the governing bodies and in the clubs because, you know, some of these people are implicated of course and some of these people have, are benefiting from the system as it is. So where does that drive for change need to come from? Because it's not going to come within the game. I understand you're saying I'm almost putting on the fans, and I think I don't, no, I don't you know, think you are. But I, I, do, I mean, I think you're right. Is that the fans? The fans clearly care passionately. The, I mean, the problem is some people sort of point to Germany and say, you know, well, you know, Germany, there's a lot of fan-owned clubs, etc. Um, but that, that's one aspect of the game. But then, you know, one of the biggest falls from grace recently was from a German um, Beckenbauer who made some really very poor choice comments on quite a few football political issues um, and hadn't clearly been manipulated in a way, but said some really stupid things. So I don't think anyone's sort of above it. I sort of think maybe the problem is, and I think the media know it to some extent, is it is a bit like we were talking about earlier. You're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't, because actually the point mm-hmm. is you're never going to come up with a perfect system which gets rid of those things, because there's always going to be someone who's going to... Every system has its flaws, and there will all be, always be people who go, oh, that's a flaw, we can work our way around that. They don't, you know, not every criminal thinks, ah, I'm exploiting this. Some of mm. them think, we're just being really clever. Um, and It was interesting as well with the, even just with the Telegraph operation that sort of took down Sam Allardyce, the, the, the questions over that, a lot of people were saying, you know, did he, any, did he really do anything that wrong? You know, was the Telegraph right in the way they got that information, uh, should he have been sat, all this sort of stuff. It's interesting to see the the reaction to it overwhelmingly was probably that Sam Anapas needed to go. But there, there was no one smoking gun, there was no one thing that people were so upset about. I, I mean, I, I still find it very unusual that the FA didn't say more about it. 
and weren't more mm-hmm. public about a lot of things. I mean, maybe I've not been reading the right outlets, but I still find it very unusual that there was kind of no... There was no argument against it. Do you know what I mean? There was no sort of, well, you know, we're going to stand by our man in this one, or, you know, we, you know, uh, other managers have made this sort of noise. He, he just went. Um, and, you know, sometimes if someone's popular at the top of an organization, you would expect that there would be people that would stand by them. And he's had very little vocal support for him. Mm from anyone else because maybe people don't want to be tarred with the same brush or you know maybe, maybe a lot of people know about it and I think that's part of it is that actually if there were other clean people or uh, predominantly clean people at the top or people who maybe didn't feel guilty or implicated we might have heard something else about this but we didn't interesting stuff um, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it in the next few weeks when the, when the Guardian releases the second part of the series do go and check it out though and see what you think put it in, the, descri- your we'll put it in the description yeah. yeah and give us your thoughts as well on Twitter as always elsewhere um, today we had Ryan Giggs Dave talking about how he turned down the job at Swansea saying the club didn't match his ambitions um, he suggested he's had a few had a few chats with him before of course they, they appointed Bob Bradley um, a few weeks ago but I mean, what do you make of this? Garrett Ryan Giggs suggesting uh, the ambitions didn't match or didn't quite work out. I don't know. It seems a bit crazy. It seems like the Swansea job, you know, if the United job's not going to come and that's what he wants, that's his dream job. Swansea would be the perfect side for him in a way. Obviously, they've been a little bit cutthroat with their managers recently. Uh, you know, they've, they've got rid of um, a lot before their time. But it seems like the perfect position for any young manager to be at Swansea City, the way that the, the youth setup is all geared to producing players to play football uh, in a certain way, you know, possession-based style that will get the best out of, of young, talented players. You will get a more complete player if it goes through that sort of system, in my personal opinion. But it just seems crazy whether his goalposts were too high, whether he wanted to, wanted to win the Premier League with Swansea City. I don't know, but it just seems a bit crazy that he didn't really go for this job because... Who else is going to go for him now? You know, he's, he's ruled himself out of the jobs of all middle table teams now. So, what does he want to have a Champions League side already? You know, and yeah, then the Premier where, League. That's well, not going to be many of those. <laughs> who's, who's going to give him the job that does match his ambitions, as you say? I mean, maybe um, the club don't. I mean, it, it's quite amb- ambiguous in that sense. Maybe he's just saying, yeah. you know, I mean, there might be another club out there that you go for an interview and they sort of go, um, you know, we, we do want to aim for the Champions League or, you know, there's something else we want to aim for. Maybe that's what he was sort of saying, uh, is that in their long in the long term, the club don't match ambitions. But, I mean, that would also be... Uh, no, that wouldn't be weird because I suppose he would have wanted to be around for a while. There are probably other teams that at least want to push for Europa League and I imagine Swansea mm. aren't saying that right now. It's interesting because I hope, I hope that he does... Um, he does get himself a job. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Soon enough, because those sort of players who were sort of the, the big players, the heroes when we were younger, um, are starting to come to that age, to come to that position where they can be managers, but not many of them seem to be making that transition smoothly. Mm. I mean, Gareth Neville, so Gary Neville, sorry. <laughs> Gareth. Gareth Neville. Neville. Gareth Southgate's England, man. He's not right. But uh, Gary Neville suggested he might not return to management. Um, Alan Shearer famously hasn't been back since his ill-fated spell with Newcastle. He's trying his best, so, though. He's trying his best. He said he, he, he wanted to give it a go last time, but for some reason they went a rough rap, I can't think why. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting if hopefully he does get that job and, and can prove himself and hopefully, um, you know, proves to be the manager that some think him to be. But it'll be interesting to see when that opportunity arises. Um, still on manager Steve Bruce, who's looking fantastic, by the way. If you saw him, have you, did you see the pictures today? He does, he does look good. Yeah, yeah he, does he look good. good. Yeah. He, he appeared on Girls on Sunday today. He's, he's got a nice haircut. He's got a better haircut than me. My God. Um, oh, obviously, lost a bit of weight. He's, I'll ignore that. He's in good shape. He's, he's fighting fit, you might say, Lawrence. And he could be uh, becoming the new manager of Aston Villa if reports are to be believed. Are you implying uh, that because Steve Bruce is more attractive, somehow, therefore, he, he becomes more eligible for the job at Villa? No, I'm saying I was just making a link between the phrase fight and fit and, you know, he's had a chat with Aston Villa. Sure. Um, it was tenuous. It was tenuous. Yeah, I mean, he, um, he, did, he did also say to himself, he was sort of like, it was just a chat, but I'm sure I'll hear back from them. And you're a bit like, if he doesn't get the job now, this is going to be very embarrassing. He was just negotiating on goals on Sunday, you know, just letting them know, you know. I'm here. Yeah. I was just letting him know. You know, I had a little chat with them, and they they were more than happy with that. You're a bit like, okay, Steve. Um, oh, obviously, didn't work out too well with old um, Bobby Zimmer of course, Lawrence. But Steve Bruce, um, acrimoniously, I think it's fair to say, mysteriously, more accurately, leaving Hull um, before the start of the season would be a good appointment for Aston Villa. Be a steady pair of hands to 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 you know sort them out a little bit. I mean, I think he definitely has a track record for steering clubs in a direction that maybe gets them to the Premier League and then maybe he sort of bottoms out or um, yeah. sort of, you know, um, uh, what's the line, What's the word for when you... Uh, plateaus. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that wouldn't be the worst thing, uh, you know, to, to bring in someone like Steve Bruce. I think he's proven that he can get clubs up from the championship and that's what um, Aston Villa's goal will be maybe not this season but maybe in a season or two I think the reason he left Hull was not so much um, anything terrible from his side but more because you know he could see the direction they were going and he didn't want that to his name and I think that's fair enough he knew he knew who knew knew, eh, that a club of 13 people uh, out out on the pitch would uh, have a manager who knew I think I think if you look at clubs like that he's managed before and done very well with, you know, Birmingham City, his first real job, um, picked them up mid-table in the first division it was then, got them promoted, stabilised them as a Premier League club. Wigan Athletic, a similar type sort of manoeuvre, you know, getting them promoted and so forth. Sunderland, steadied that ship. Hull City again, promotion, steadied the ship. So if Villa want to steady their ship, Steve Bruce could be a very good option. Elsewhere this week, good week for debuts. Um... Most recently, we had Galatasaray, uh, Mustafi Kapi, 14 years old, making his debut in a team friendly, obviously following the example of Celtic. Call me a cynic, Lawrence. Mm-hmm. But I just think they did this for, did they do this for cynical PR reasons? They saw the attention 
that Celtic got from their from their own player Karamoko Dembele making his debut earlier last week. Is this just some attempt to to get some good PR and some some eyeballs on the club? Or yeah, I mean just... it's in, it's in a friendly, isn't it? It's the same as anything else. Um, very sweet, uh, very nice, nice images for any club. Um, it's still just sort of both very young I mean 13 and 14 I physically competing at that level must be very difficult the Dembele seem to I don't know Dave have you seen the highlights yeah um, yeah yeah, player that looks like he has a lot of talent but again you've got a question he's 13 years old There's, there's a lot from him being 13 years old till he gets to 18 till when he potentially should be pushed towards the first team Mm. we've seen how many players if they if they push into the first team at 16 that they're burnt out by 28 so basically it's judging a career and, and seeing what you can do with this player at 13 years old playing and competing at that level is probably going to be wrong for his development in terms of him as a footballer I think that's too early I think there's a lot he needs to learn his body's going to change he's 13 he might have a massive growth spurt he might be 6-7 we don't know but again it's, I, you know it's there selection as a, as a football club to do this so I think it's irresponsible and I think that you shouldn't be putting pressure onto players of that age we saw Freddie Adu capitulate as a footballer because he had the pressure at 14 for me it's just completely wrong and it's it's I feel I feel sorry for the, the poor lads you know I feel sorry for those two lads because the pressure and the everything right now in their lives is going to have absolutely exploded I agree with those you because... two those two lads probably just want to play football just want to go and kick a ball into a goal and that's why yeah. football is great for people because it's something they enjoy doing this exposure isn't doing that and it's irresponsible. I mean, the, the, at the same with... time, I think the club will probably have advised them, but I don't know how... Well, I mean, if, if the club wants to move someone in a certain direction anyway, maybe they get, you know, they're going to sort of give the advice of, ah, this is good for you. Um, so I kind of... Okay, I, I mean, I agree with Dave, but, you know... Yeah, just, just on, like, to... To, re, to counterpoint to that kind of thing is Celtic, as a football club, who have they brought through in the last 10 years? You know what I mean? Their youth development has been very, very poor. Is this a new strategy where they, they just go, right, 13-year-old, got some talent, let's just put him in straight away. It's absolutely mental. They're, they're, they haven't been doing very well in that category for years and years and years. Neither have Galatasaray, in a way. Galatasaray, what was the last big player that's come from Galatasaray in the last five years? Mm. You know, th- th- these two teams have struggled, and it seems a bit weird. It seems a little bit pr and it seems, again, yeah. the wrong thing to do. It's an interesting point you bring up, Dave, because of course it, there was so much attention about, oh my God, this 13-year-old making his debut. Uh, this is amazing, of course, Karamoko Dembele, but the next day the articles already, as you say, were, is this kid the next Lionel Messi or is he the next Freddie Adu? And it's like, bloody hell, he's 13, is it? Mm. It's too soon to be judging him just on what, those. Just what to play a bit of FIFA 17, doesn't he? Exactly. Um, he just, he just right. Essentially, Dave, he's living the journey from FIFA 17. <laughs> he's, living the, he's living the journey he's three it. years too early. Yeah. Yes, yes. Which is also the debut album, I think, from Dave. <laughs> right. As I said at the top of the show, it's the one-year anniversary of Jurgen Klopp joining Liverpool so early this week. Lawrence McKenna, our very own Lawrence McKenna, sat down with Jonathan Wilson to discuss how Klopp has made the club believe again. This is all, this is all Jurgen. Um, but what, I'm, what I was interested in was sort of your knowledge of the Liverpool history and maybe... A little later on, we'll get into maybe what he sort of brings back from the past that Liverpool fans seem to have attached themselves to a little bit. But mm-hmm. um, before we get into it, let's just let's start off with very broadly. How would you describe Jurgen Klopp? 
Well, I think the, the, yeah, the first thing is is his his liveliness. You know, he he's an exciting person to be around. His press conferences are never dull. You know, some managers, you, you turn up and you 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 you're, you're both going through the motions. Uh, Manuel Pellegrini, to to give you an example, Klopp is not like that. You know, you, you don't know what he's going to say. You know, he's going to be entertaining. He understands the media game. Um, I think a lot of his mannerisms are maybe a little bit rehearsed. Mm-hmm. And I think certainly when you see him doing a series of interviews, bang, 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 you notice that he, ha, at the same point every time. Um, but, you know, that's that's the game. And you'd rather he does that and maintains the enthusiasm than, than, than slipping into, God, I'm doing this, I'm doing this for the fifth time today. I'm doing, you know, I've already said this, answer, given this answer eight times. You know, he, and, and so you, if he makes journalists feel excited, mm-hmm. then he must make players feel excited. Mm-hmm. I guess the danger then is that that eventually becomes very wearing, that, that you're constantly being with, I don't know, it's like Tigger out of Winnie the Pooh or something. He, he would wear you out, and maybe, maybe that's what happened towards the end of Dortmund. But a year in at Liverpool, everybody still seems utterly enthused by him. And what's, what's extraordinary, um, and, and I think a good thing, is that his record in terms of points per game is still lower than Brendan Rodgers's. Yep. And yet, there's so much more positivity, so much more sense that Liverpool are moving in the right direction. Which I think is partly to do his. I mean, it's partly just. I think that is the case, but partly his charisma has allowed him to uh, sort of brush off the poorer results. And uh, Klopp's a very genuine guy, but then people also talk about this act, and it's sort of it's hard to describe that in a documentary or sort of talk to people because, in many ways, it you know when you think of the act, that takes away from some of the magic that's there, and it's almost like you know when Mourinho's veil was removed that began to fall away. Do you think there's a, it's similar with Klopp or do you think it's different? Possibly. I, mean, I, think, I think it's important to understand what that mask is. Um, it doesn't make him dishonest. It doesn't make him hypocritical. Mm. It's just that uh, he's, you know, he's like an actor on a stage. That he, he has, as a, you know, it appears that uh, he goes into press conference with a clear message he wants to deliver. He's worked out the way he wants to deliver that mm. and he does that. It's a performance. Mm. Uh, and I think any kind of leadership... Um, that you know, that's what rhetoric is. Mm. Uh, so it doesn't bother me, um, and the fact he makes you believe it's uh, it's spontaneous, it, it shows how good he is. He, he is at that, but that's no different to you know an actor in a theatre or in, in a film. That you, know, you, you don't want to know he's rehearsed that thirty times. You don't want to know that this this play has been running for twenty weeks and you're seeing week twenty one. You know, you want to believe it's happening for the first time for you. Yeah. And I think we suspend our disbelief quite easily in the theatre or, or in the cinema. Why not in press conferences? And if that's what it takes to enthuse players and journalists and fans and everybody, so be it. What did you think of him when he first arrived? Like, because obviously, you know, you've got knowledge of him before from Bundesliga and um, other, other coverage. What was your opinion of him when he first came to England? Oh, he's very excited. I mean, he, he clearly is part of a new breed of, of German coaches, a new breed of of European coaches who uh, who believe in this pressing game. Um, I, I was very pleased that early on uh, at Liverpool, he, he he made the point that Gagan pressing is essentially English football of the eighties, made more sophisticated, ramped up in terms of sports science and nutrition and fitness. But it's not actually that different to the game we were used to. And I, I think that, from from the general point of view of English football, is an important thing to remember and to understand. That I think English football lost its way in, in the 80s and, and early 90s, that uh, Lillishaw um, under Charles Hughes, um, when they were playing long ball football and they were obsessed by Pomo, the position of maximum opportunity. 
I think that was a very damaging uh, period for English football. And you, know, you saw the drop-off in results in the early 90s. And I think we lost faith in ourselves and what our football was about. And we, we forgot mm. how English teams were winning the European Cup seven years in a row in the late 70s, early 80s. And, and you now hear after every major tournament, oh, you know, we've got to do it the Dutch way, we've got to do it the French way, clear Clairefontaine's model, um, the Spanish way, we've we, we got to all play brilliant possession football. We could just try being English again and remember what, what it was that, that made us good. Mm. Um, now, that's not to say there's not things to learn, uh, but Klopp is quite open that his model of football is, is English in origin. It's the football he grew up watching on TV. That's what sort of inspired him. Mm. And obviously, it's evolved. Football has evolved in the last 30 years. He's taken it further. Um, but I, I think that's why he feels such a natural fit for the Premier League, that his football is a, is a version of English football that has been played in England for about 50, 60 years. Where do you think Klopp sits in that sort of current pantheon of managers? Because there's some people who, um, you know, obviously he, he's, he's in the same breath as Pep Guardiola, Jose Mourinho, all those other guys, Ancelotti, those guys at the top. Where do you think he sits within that range of managers? Well, I think what's interesting, and it's, it's slightly difficult to, to talk about because uh, I don't think anybody's actually said this on the record, but I've certainly know of one coach who definitely is in that pantheon who's very, very sceptical about him, who sees him as a motivator and nothing more. Mm-hmm. And I think within coaching circles, there is a certain scepticism about him, that they feel he's maybe not quite precise enough, that um, he... And it, clearly motivation is a huge part of what he does. Uh, that I, but I think there is a sense, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but I think there is a sense that he's not quite as sophisticated as a Guardiola, as a Mourinho. Um... But then, you know, which which coach in the world has beaten Guardiola the most often? Jurgen Klopp. Uh, he's beaten him four times. And Mourinho's beaten him three times. And Mourinho in far more games. So, uh, you know, he's got something. Um, I, I, but I thought it was really obvious last season when you saw United play Liverpool that Van Gaal's football felt old-fashioned. It felt like this was something from, from the 90s or maybe a little bit after that. Whereas Klopp's football felt very new, very, very vigorous, very percussive, and I think the of the sort of three or four highest quality games I've seen this season, Liverpool at Spurs, you know, is, is one of those. Um, two teams playing very modern, very exciting, very intelligent football, but I think there can at times be a sense with Guardiola, his football is a little bit bloodless, a little bit too cerebral. Whereas Klopp's is very much football of the heart. Do you think that's a tough... Because this is my worry as a Liverpool fan, is that I actually quite like... Uh, a few, I often compare Klopp and Benitez because they're the two biggest figures in the you know, recent memory. Both of them are quite zeitgeist managers in the sense that they summarise exactly the football of that time. Benitez, the conservatism of you know, his Valencia side and the Liverpool team, which ultimately allowed them to be a slightly more expansive as they became more and more powerful. And Klopp's a bit more zeitgeist in that he... you know, It's all about pressing and he sits within that class of pressers. That's my worry, is where is he taking Liverpool? Yeah, but you'd rather have a manager who's of the zeitgeist than one who's of the previous zeitgeist. Yeah. I mean, I, I think... Yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to that game between Liverpool and, and United because I think there's been a slight sense over the last season or two that Mourinho, maybe his time has, has just passed, mm-hmm. that you, you, look at, you look at managers through history and there's a tiny number who are successful at the very highest level for more than a decade. Mm-hmm that basically at the top level you, you have 
I mean, in many cases, not even 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, when you are at, at your peak, when your style of football is, I don't know, zeitgeist, if you use your word, somehow appropriate to the, to the circumstances in which you find yourself, in which your players are, are, are they most motivated by you? And I think because of what Alex Ferguson's done, and, or yeah, something like Lobanovsky, it's, it's possible to, um, to forget mm-hmm. how brief most managerial reigns are. And I, I certainly think with Mourinho, there's, there's been a sense... Well, if I, you only have to look at his record, that he, he won, what, six league titles in his first eight years as a manager and two in the seven years yeah. since. This will be the eighth season. Um, and his two European Cups, two Champions Leagues, came in, in that first half, not the second half. Um, can he still deal with, with players in the same way? Or, or his, Mourinho's great gift was taking young players... Well, not young players, but unproven players, players who hadn't hadn't won things, players who still had something to prove, and, and giving them a cause to fight for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder now, at a club like Manchester United or, or even Real Madrid, whether the Galactico-style player that, that they get in, whether they respond to that. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting things about what Klopp's done at Liverpool. They haven't spent huge sums. Maybe they spent money, but not enormous sums. They haven't brought in Galacticos. They they brought in players with something to prove, and and you can sort of see that they are motivated by the cause. They are running, they are chasing. Their, you know, their running stats are incredible. Mm. Um, so it feels like Klopp's football is a little bit more modern than Mourinho's. So seeing them against each other uh, is is going to be fascinating. Every other channel's done it, so let's ask you about Gagan pressing. Um, okay, <laughs> uh, it seems to be the only video that I, I see promoted with your name next to it is uh, you explain Gagan pressing. Um, and, do you, and then I guess my follow-up to that would be, do you think that's, that's the defining factor of Klopp's football? Yeah, I mean, getting pressing is clearly what his football is, is based upon. Um, one, of the, one of the key trends of the last decade across football mm. has been the number of goals scored in the counter-attack has diminished. And the reason for that is that uh, a, a, a number of managers, Guardiola, Bielsa, Klopp, have realised that the moment at which a player is most vulnerable is immediately after he's won the ball. So you make a tackle, you may be a little bit off balance, you've just expended energy in making the tackle, uh, you perhaps don't quite have a clear vision of where other players are on the pitch, your, your own players and, and the opposition players. So if you are hounded suddenly by three or four players, it's very difficult for you to, to find the right option to, to move the ball on. Um, to do it well requires great organisation because the danger of three or four players charging at one player is if you if you break that press, this you've left space in behind you. Um, it also requires enormous fitness, and I think that's the difference between Gagan pressing, the, the style of football we, we, we've be, we're becoming used to, and the pressing you saw in the eighties when Liverpool were doing it to win European Cups, is that it's done with far greater intensity for far longer now, mm. just because players are fitter. You know, they're not drinking in the way that that <laughs> Liverpool side certainly drank. Um, I understand the nutrition of, of of just how to make the make a footballer be able to run at full pelt for ninety minutes is far better now than it was then, yeah. and so you can keep doing it. Um, but it's absolutely uh, Klopp's way of doing things. And you know, when, when he first made a name for himself in Germany, it was as a as a television pundit. And the thing he was saying was, "Don't play with the Libra, play with the back four. Playing with a back four means you can do this, 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 and this. A libero means you're going man to man. It means you can't press in zones. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And German football was weirdly, for all its success, was really was weirdly backward with that in the late nineties. That the the side that won the Euros in ninety six uh, under Bertie votes was possibly the worst German side in history, and yet still won the tournament because of I don't know mentality, because of Matthias Sammer. Um, but the style of football they were playing was a very, very old-fashioned form of football. And even within Germany, you'd seen people like Ralf Rangnick having great success with Freiburg. Klopp is you know, part of that, that wave of coaches. Um, there's a famous game when Freiburg beat Bayern 5-0 when they pressed them. And Bayern, even Bayern, had no idea how to deal with it. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the basics of game pressing. It, uh, where it becomes complicated is how you direct it. Mm-hmm. Because even, even as fit as players are today, they can't actually run 100% for 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. So you have to work out when it's appropriate to do it and to which players it's appropriate to do it. Uh, so is, that, that's, that Spurs-Liverpool game, it was really obvious that there was, um, there was a policy of when any of the Spurs back four got the ball, try and force them to play the ball to Danny Rose. Now, I presume that Danny Rose had been highlighted as being, of the two fullbacks, the one who was slightly less comfortable on the ball. And the full, problem the fullback has, this is actually where Van Hal is quite modern, because Van Hal hated playing out through the fullback. The fullback has the goal line behind him, a touchline to his side. So he's already boxed in on two sides. Three players come at him, where does he go? He tries to hit a long ball down the, down the wing, maybe tries to play a square ball, and, and then if you've got other players coming at the centre back, maybe you can nip in there. But there's clearly a policy in that game of forcing Tottenham to play through Danny Rose. So that's where getting pressing can be really focused um, on the, the player in the opposition team who, who you feel is going to give you uh, the, the, the best opportunity of getting the ball back off him. And what that does is then, A, it gives you the ball back high up the pitch, but B, it prevents the opponent cycling into a rhythm, it prevents them countering in the way that they used to, and a lot of counter-cycling moves are sort of, presets maybe the wrong word, but they, they, they would practice... Yeah. Okay, you've got the ball back. Where do you go? Yeah, Danny Rose plays down the line to Lamella, knocks it inside to Eriksson or, or whatever. If you if you interrupt that, then just the whole process of starting attacks becomes much more difficult for the opponent. When he first came, he, he spoke about playing with with your gut, and that's something a lot of English people misinterpreted essentially because well, so we're told now it's a very trendy thing to tell everyone that we misinterpret the foreign language. But he was talking about you know playing with your gut and essentially um, I don't know how to put it really. You know, the players automatically knowing where to go and automatically knowing what to do. And now Liverpool are doing that, they do seem a lot more effective. Do you, what, do you, what do you think about that? Because that's obviously really fascinating. They almost, I know, there's almost an element of ego there that he wants to be able to programme them so that they go out and do exactly... Yeah, I mean, not just about programming. It's, it's, you know, this is not, it's not a new idea. It's something that Arrigo Saki said, that he, he hated the notion of positions on the pitch. Mm-hmm that he, he felt they were restrictive and it, it put a series of ideas in players' minds that weren't useful. He said every player on the pitch should decide upon their own position based on four things. Position of the ball, position of the space, position of your teammates, position of your opponents. Yeah. And if that meant, you know, nine players on the left side of the pitch and one on the right, so be it. But, you know, you, you worked out, you, you were constantly thinking, you are constantly reprogramming yourself. Where do I, where do I need to be mm-hmm. to be the most useful for my team? Um, and that's something that Jorginho Wijnaldum was speaking about recently. But he said, yeah, the back four is the back four, and we know what the back four does. But the, the other six, they don't really have positions. They, they go where they feel they need to go. So I think that's the, you know, the idea of automatic play 
it's where you, you've assimilated those principles of, of where you take up your position. And you're not thinking, in Wijnaldum's case, OK, I'm a left of three central midfielders, that means I need to be here, and, oh, I'm getting dragged right, that's not... I shouldn't be. Well, if you're getting dragged right, that's, that's fine, as long as you're getting dragged right, because I, I don't know if Klopp does follow the, the, the Saki process of having those four... Uh, you know, four factors, but I would guess it's something similar to that. Mm. Uh, so once you assimilate those principles, I think you have much more, much more freedom in the sense you're not uh, constricted by a position. But it's not complete freedom in the sense that you, there's reasons why you take up those positions. Yeah, Liverpool has always been a club since Shankly left that's fascinated with finding someone else that leads them in a similar way. They made Rafa into that character and then he sort of bought into it when he saw it was effective because essentially his, I don't know how else to put it, but sort of managerial autism meant that he kind of got, um, you know, he put himself in a, you know, he was perfect in all the other ways, but essentially Liverpool fans sort of filled him up on the bit that he wasn't very good at, which was the emotional side. They almost humanised him. Brendan Rodgers is a complete opposite. No one really seemed to find him very inspirational. And now back to Klopp. So that... When Klopp was first signed, I think Liverpool fans were more than willing to, you know, sort of revive something from the past. What's your opinion of sort of what Jurgen brings back, or what you know the memories, or how do you see that? In yeah, that I, mean, I, I think it's absolutely true that Liverpool feel they need a messiah at all times. They need a messiah. They they want you know, somebody else to be to be Shankly, um, and Paisley sort of was Shankly in, a, in the least charismatic way conceivable. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a sense that Liverpool need something to lead them out the wilderness. And uh, Rafa did take that on uh, eventually. Um, he certainly tried to take on at Newcastle as well, I think. So he, he, I, it seems he quite likes that idea. Um, but I think Klopp is a good fit for that. I think he he's quite happy to be the, the, the face of the club. That's how he was at, at Dortmund. And I think there are clear similarities between Dortmund and Liverpool in terms of what the city's like, in terms of what the fans are like. Um, in terms of a sense of okay, we're we're maybe not the richest club, but we do things in the best way. Um, so so yeah, that that's, that need of a messianic figure, uh, he he fits that, and he you know he does have a doctrine. His doctrine of Gagan pressing, you know, he, he's not like Ancelotti. Say Ancelotti is somebody who I think it's very hard to say what Ancelotti's philosophy is. He he's a pragmatist. He he deals with the situation he finds whatever club he goes to. You know. Uh, Klopp is is not going to do that. He's going to get to a club and he's going to say, "This is my way of doing things," and if that means ostracising players who previously been key, yes, so be it. And I think yeah, Daniel Sturridge maybe is finding that now. Mm-hmm. Do you think Daniel Sturridge is finding that? Because it's sort of from the outside, I think fans want to see, oh, Sturridge is struggling a little bit with it, and in the end, he'll make it into the team. Or you know, there's this there's a perception because it also sort of makes Klopp into a bad guy essentially or it's easy to portray him that way if he's freezing out one of the club heroes do you think well, I don't think I don't think he's freezing him out as such as it's not like with Mourinho and Schweinsteig it's not that he's made him train with the reserves but it's equally obvious that Sturridge is not one of his first choices from three um, and, and there's a couple of times that Klopp has said things in public that you sort of thought it's a bit harsher than we used to hearing from managers I mean the that thing he's got to understand what pain real pain the difference between them that's an odd thing for manager to say. It's, I, I think Klopp sees in Sturridge a very skillful player, a great finisher, and sees somebody he maybe could work with. But Sturridge has got to adapt himself. So maybe it will happen. Um, but the evidence of the end of last season, beginning of this season, 
Izard Sturridge struggles with with pressing. That is not his natural game, and I, I don't want to say it's a lack of effort because I, I can't can't really believe it is that, but it just doesn't seem something he's comfortable with. Mm. With, with with regards to the future of Liverpool, um, you know, obviously he's signed a new contract, so he's going to be there. Well, I mean, that doesn't mean he guarantees he's going to be there for a little bit longer, but it's sort of a statement of intention almost. And FSG are, FSG are very much about the long term. We see that at the Boston Red Sox, where those guys have just won the Eastern Conference of MLB. Um, I don't know if you follow baseball. I don't know anyone who does. Um, anyway, they, you know, for a very long time, they, they were at the bottom of their division and weren't doing so well. It's, what's fascinating to me is where Klopp's going to leave Liverpool. Where do you think Klopp is leading them? And ultimately, where do you think that goes? Because this isn't the same philosophy that Liverpool have always had as a club. And it's, to me, it could appear a little bit short-termist to sort of say, well, we'll play Klopp's football now and then you know, we'll, we'll get another guy afterwards. Doesn't, I don't know where it goes after that. Essentially, after Klopp, it feels a bit like... Yeah, I mean, I guess they're hoping that, that after Klopp is a, is a long, long time in the future. Um, and I think that, that idea of establishing a style of play and bringing in a coach who's appropriate to that um, is difficult to do at the very highest level. And I think you're seeing Manchester United struggling with that, that every coach they bring in has very different ideas and wants different players. Um, if you're Swansea starting from scratch, it's, it's certainly not easy, but it's easier to say, OK, we're not bothered particularly about winning initially. We're bothered about survival and we're bothered about laying down good principles. And Swansea have done that brilliantly. Mm-hmm. And they're possibly starting to struggle with that now because they don't know where to go next. Um Liverpool, I think, expect to be qualifying for Champions League, maybe not every season, but most seasons, um, and they would presumably hope to a proper title challenge, and maybe this season, but I, I would guess it's slightly ahead of schedule, but certainly within a couple of years. And that's why I think this issue of patience and the fact that Klopp hasn't yet got as many points per game as, as Rodgers is, is significant. Now, I think Rodgers was seen as a messianic figure when, when he arrived, um, and he did a very similar thing of you know, sacrificing Andy Carroll of this guy does not fit my philosophy um, but then unfortunately um, maybe it was financial maybe it was Rogers' personality maybe it was a bit of bad luck uh, but Rogers became a slightly ridiculous figure uh, and, and some of that I think was a bit unfair I mean the whole thing with the envelope putting the three names in the envelope and you know these are people I, I'm worried might disappoint me Alex Ferguson did that with six players in 1994 uh, 1993, sorry, and they win the double. And now, nobody talks about that as being a nonsensical gesture. In fact, nobody talks about it at all, but you could argue it worked in, in 93. So, you know, Rodgers took them incredibly close to the lead title, far closer than they had any right to be in terms of the nature of that squad, the um, the money they invested. I mean, good as Suarez was, one player can't win you the title. Um and very, you know, very quickly the tide turned against Rodgers. Um, so the same could happen with Klopp. Uh, and I wonder at what point that is. Um, I mean, at the minute, they, they're producing great performance and beating big sides. They're struggling a little bit against... I mean, lost to Burnley, struggle against Swansea. Um, so do they have a problem against teams who sit deep against them? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, we'll find out. But... I think we're in a fascinating phase because it feels at the moment that there possibly is 
an outside chance they could win the title this season. I think certainly the way things have gone so far, Liverpool would expect to be in the top four at the end of the season. But then it's can they kick on, assuming that happens, can they kick on to the next level? What, how, how much money do they have? Who, who can they, will they bring in? Will the very top players be prepared to play that kind of football? Mm. Um, is there a danger that the best players get plucked away, as, as happened with Dortmund? Um, so all those bridges have to be crossed. But at the moment, I guess things are going as well as realistically they could be expected to. Anything stand out from Klopp's first year for, to you? What, what's the, apart from obviously the Europa League final? Well, I mean, the, the game against Dortmund was the, you know, that, that was like the, the great nights under Rafa. That was, you know, those are the nights Anfield lives for. Those are the nights that as a journalist you love being at Anfield for. Um, the sense of, you know, you, you, you got it in Istanbul, um, you got it in the Olympiakos game in 2004-05, that very strange sense of inevitability uh, that you can't really explain. But that Dortmund game, once the comeback began to happen, OK, this is happening. You know, I, I'm confident that Liverpool will win this game. And, you know, an hour after the final whistle, you're writing your report thinking, this is weird. Why, why was I so confident? Why did... And if I feel it in the press box, fans must feel it, players must feel it, and then it sort of becomes self-perpetuating, self-fulfilling. Um, so the fact Klopp has the capacity to instil that in players, I think, is hugely encouraging. But then the Europa League final showed perhaps limitations. I mean, they were they were utterly outplayed by Sevilla in the second half. Mm. So, you know, I, I still think, although things are going well, I still think um, it'd be wise not to get too carried away. Do you think that shows Klopp's weakness? What, what is the weakness of Klopp? What would you describe as weakness? Well, is that the weakness of Klopp or is it the weakness of the team at that point of the season when they hadn't had his pre-season, when they, they, he hadn't brought players in, when they maybe hadn't assimilated those principles we were talking about? Sevilla uh, you know, are an excellent side. You have three Europa Leagues in a row. Uh, Unai Emery knows how to win those games. Uh, you can't win every game. Um, but, uh, yeah, the... the the inability to break down Burnley, the struggles against Swansea—that that would be the concern. But you know, you look at what they're third in the table at the moment, fourth, fourth, on, the table, fourth on the table at the moment. Um, they've played a disproportionate number of away games. They've played away at Spurs, away at uh, Chelsea, and got positive results out of those two. If they beat Manchester United at home, yeah, they've had a pretty tough start of the season. And we'll be in a fantastic position. So that would be yeah, highly encouraging, obviously. Let me just, I think we've covered so many bases there. It's fantastic. Uh, what is it? like As a journalist outside of Liverpool, I know what I loved is a really good quote. I think I maybe did make it into the documentary a few years ago where you said, uh, you said to your mum you wanted to be born in Liverpool <laughs> so you could be a Liverpool fan. In, in, the, in the early 80s, when the Sunderland were desperately struggling against relegation, because that's definitely changed. Um, but, yeah, it was, and Liverpool were winning everything. I, I just remember going to the kitchen one day and saying to my mum, I wish I'd been born in Liverpool so I could have supported Liverpool. Um, which shows two things. A, that I understood you were only allowed to support teams that you had a, a close geographical or familiar connection to. Uh, but two, I mean, it, was, it happened to be Liverpool who were winning the league. I didn't actually know Liverpool as a city. I didn't even understand them as a club. I just saw they were winning every time they were on telly. You know, they were always top of the table. Um, if it had been Aston Villa winning the league every season, I'd have been saying, oh, I wish I'd been born in, in Birmingham. Um, Which no one's ever said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
having gone through this process and the domination of team, you know, the Shankly team, the Paisley team, all the all the boot room teams, you know, do you see any parallels between the football that they play then and the football we play now? Yeah, I mean, the, the depressing game that um, I suppose Shankly to an extent, but certainly Paisley instilled uh, is the precursor of the, the pressing game that they play now. That hound the opposition in possession, you know, don't let them settle on the ball, get the ball back as high a pitch as you can. Playing the you know, the a flattish back four, looking for offsides, playing high up pitch. Uh, offside was obviously a lot easier to get in those days. Mm. Um, but but yeah, it's 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 the same football brought up to date. So there's very clear similarities. And the problem when you talk about playing an offside trap or, or you know, playing high up pitch or or pressing is it, it sounds very functional. And I, I guess there was something slightly functional about Shankly's and Pacey's teams. And that's less there in in, in the Klopp side. I think it is more. Um, more emotional football. Um, and I think Paisley was uh, a very unemotional man, mm. and I think that, to an extent, was reflected in his teams. Um, but there was something very clinical at times about that Liverpool. Um, whereas I think Klopp's brio, his his sort of enthusiasm for life, is reflected in his teams. And yeah, watching Liverpool play well is is brilliant. It is genuinely thrilling. Um, and, you know, when you've watched as much football as journalists do in the, what well, I've been doing for 17 years now, watching 120, 130 games a season, um, live, plus stuff on telly, it's very easy for it to sort of sink into the sludge. Liverpool at Chelsea, um, Liverpool at Arsenal in the opening of the season, that, that, you know, those two 20-minute spells in those, those two games when they were absolutely at the top of their game, it lifts you. You, you, you know you will remember that for, for a long time, whereas... A lot of games sink into your subconscious, and uh, you're going back to your laptop. Going, oh God, I was there. Mm. Well, you know that, that was Arsenal, uh, Arsenal Chelsea game. No, you'll know you were there because it was uplifting. Uh, you've been fantastic. Thank you very much. Really no, great pleasure. Thank you very much to the inspirational Jonathan Wilson. Absolutely fascinating interview. I love Jonathan Wilson. I don't think there's a journalist in football I love more than Jonathan Wilson. Wouldn't you agree, Lance? I really love him. I think he's great. So good. Um, in the pyramid, if you haven't read it, I believe we recommended it um, on seven thousand times. Do it yeah, again. It a what lot, a book! But you can't recommend it enough. It is really. I mean, it is fantastic. And then he also gave me another book, which was called "The Anatomy of Liverpool: Ten Games That Define oh, Liverpool." Nice history, isn't it? it really is a good. It's a great book. Um, and he's very insightful about Liverpool. So it sort of goes charts the very first time they uh, did particularly well. All the way to um, obviously the last few sets of influential games within recent memory. So it's very interesting. Now on last week's podcast um, on Wednesday, of course, Lawrence and Chris were talking about player that made you fall in love with a beautiful game. We're going to be revisiting that in a moment, talking about some of your suggestions on Twitter Good. and mine and Dave's uh, favorite players. But before we get to that, we've got to talk about Fanjul, of course. Of course, you've all signed up out there. You can't play during International Week. But that doesn't mean you can't prepare for next week. Yes. Of course, Dave, have you got your team ready, Dave? Um, well, I'm just going to, uh, you know, the, the FanDuel Twitter account have dropped out their, their team so far. I'm going to criticise it, destroy it, pull it apart what? and tell you some players that you need to have in your FanDuel team. Good. So uh, FanDuel, what they've done is they've done their average points per game metric. Again, a little bit misleading. You've got to consider the minutes that they've played and then the time that they've played, obviously. Because let's go for the, the goalkeeper they've thrown in there, Kasper Schmeichel, with an average of 17 points. 
Um, again, a player that hasn't played as many games as the goalkeepers. So maybe look for somebody, like I mentioned before, someone like Ben Foster, who's West Brom defensively are very, very good this season. On to their back three. They've got Callum Chambers, Curtis Davis and Danny Rose. Again, Callum Chambers and Danny Rose have only played three and four games respectively. Curtis Davis has been an absolute rock so far in the Premier League, so he has to be in your side. Other players that defensively you can look at. United You know, potentially may get a bit sturdier in the next few weeks. Liverpool have been doing very well, especially going forward. You know, If James Milner does fall into that category, get him in. Oh, no, but no, he falls into their midfield. So you've got Milner... Coutinho and Kevin De Bruyne, Chadley and, and Son. Um, the best points per game ratios there. Son as well as a player that you want to have in your team definitely next week. Brilliant against Manchester City. You guys didn't get my thoughts on that anyway. I thought Son was fundamental to that, that win. How he led yeah. the press against Manchester City. How he stopped them coming out the back. It was so interesting. When they had the ball, Spurs looked more of a 4-2-3-1. But when they were pressing because they were doing it in such a man-to-man orientated manner, it looked actually like a 4-4-2 narrow diamond. And Son was leading the lines with Deli Ali and Christian Eriksen was in behind. Then they had Sissoko and... The other player who I've completely forgotten, Lamella, was on that rules playing that right central midfield of the little diamond. Then Wanyama, what a performance he had. He was absolutely brilliant against Manchester City, at everything up, 1v1 so many times. And every single time he won those sort of situations, whether it was the tackle, whether it was the interception. But anyway, we're moving away from the Fangio section. onto the attack. Points per game, best uh-huh. two players. We've got Lukaku, obviously, because he's been banging the goals in in recent weeks. And Diego Costa, again, been in cracking goal-scoring form. But you've got to look at one man if you've got goal scorers. It's got to be Aguero in this Manchester City team, obviously returning to fitness. But the goals are flying for him. And he's got to be, you know, if you, I think the two players, you know, I'd say Son and Aguero have got to be in your side next week. And that is a wrap. Son and Aguero. Hmm. I like that shout. City have got Everton at home. Um, you know, everything they've got a good defence. You, you you better you better Guerrero to score because he, he's on fire. And then yeah, Son, I've, I, he didn't do so well for me. Um, he did do so well for me. Oh no, he did. Yeah, of course he got about one assist against uh, City for fantasy football. Um, I mean, it's yeah, not all West about Moore. assists with Fanjul, Adam. That's why you've gone wrong there. That's oh, why your assumption is wrong about Fanjul. All about the headline stat. Um, yeah, Chelsea, I, mean, I reckon Chelsea players would be a good. Yeah, because they got Leicester at home next it's, week. It's also worth looking at Liverpool this week because mm. uh, Firmino and Coutinho are getting back from long international trips with Brazil. Having uh, Coutinho, I think he started um, having sort of fought Willian out the side. I say fought. Willian is going through a bit of a hard time at the moment. I hope he's all mm. right. Um, and then obviously also Firmino came on as a sub. Still the travel and stuff. He's only getting back four days before mm. the game, despite the fact Liverpool have sort of sorted out you know, promote Jets from and stuff. So it's worth sort of considering that when doing fan duel. Playing, playing Man United on Monday, though. You yeah, but he's only getting you're back, back four days before it? the game, Adam. But yeah, you'd bat Liverpool full stop anyway, wouldn't you? So. Would you? Ooh, mate. All right. Okay. We, we can be friends. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I guess so. I guess so. I'd, still, I'd still say maybe it's better to go, if you're backing Liverpool full stop, with someone like Mane. Might be more integral to the attack <laughs> if Coutinho and Firmino aren't there. Just saying. I like that. I like that. I Maybe love, even uh, a de-studge. So guys, do get on FanDuel. Get creating your teams for, for next week's league. For our league, we'll leave a description, a link in the description, I should say. Dave, you already won a pound of FanDuel, I believe. Multiple pounds, Adam. I am a FanDuel oh. legend. Fair play to you. If Fair Dave was in Weight Watchers, they would not like him. I'd be, off, you know, I'd be out Weight Watchers as soon as, as soon as I got in there, right? Gaining all the pounds, Dave. Oh no, sorry, uh, no, I'd be getting told off, wouldn't I? I'd be giving more dietary advice. Yes. 
No, good point. Let's yeah. Just like real fan jewel. Let's talk about love, Lawrence. Oh. Specifically players who made you fall in love with the beautiful game. You yeah. and Chris discussed this on Wednesday. Everyone's been beautiful. sending in their thoughts and really interesting suggestions. Um, Chairman Rao at Nargoli tweeting in, Alan Magic Johnson at Sunderland was a fan before he arrived, but he was class and became a personal fave. Uh, Mr. Rogue saying, Ali McCoist, he wasn't here as a Rangers legend. Diving head versus Leeds in the first ever Champions League qualifier. Uh, Gabriel Woots, the main man, saying, Buffon, reason he's a Juve fan, why he always plays in goal, mm. um, besides being shit anywhere else on the pitch. Mm. Um, we'll go through some more suggestions, but before that, Dave, who is the player, who is the man who made you fall in love with the beautiful game when you saw him on the pitch? I think it's got to be Gabriel Batistuta. The way he used to absolutely crack a shot and, you know, the way that he could finish was, was brilliant. And, yeah, it was, it's a strange one. It's, it's not, a, not a United player. It's not a player in England. It's Gabriel Batistuta. I think it was because I used to watch a lot of the... What was the programme on Channel 4 called? No, um, the Serie A. Uh, um, I was going to say Rivista de la Liga, Dave. <laughs> yeah, what's it called, Adam? You got it right? Football Italia. Yeah, Football Italia, yeah. So it was Gabriel, Gabriel Batistuta because it had that feeling of it being something completely unknown you know being from England the Premier League is the big well the Premier League is the big thing but like watching Football Italia and, and seeing the I know the way that he strutted around it was it was almost that he was dominating an unknown that I didn't know about and I wanted to know about it was almost like a, a story or an adventure every time you'd watch Football Italia and Gabriel Battistuta at that time was at Fiorentina then he moved to Roma and he was the man of the moment so for me yeah he's the big man Big yeah. Argentine. And as well, the Real first player. goal, I think the first or second goal I ever saw live was Gabriel Batistuta smashing in a 30-yard screamer. Good. Wow. Um, go for the one and only David Ginola. Excellent. Um, what a man. A beautiful man on the pitch, off the pitch. Um, you don't see many players at their unveiling just go completely topless. That was quite a moment. But um, yeah, that goal against, I believe, it was in the FA Cup. The solo goal, the famous one where he sort of, you know, jinked through four or five Barnsley players, slide in. You knew, I think I was 10, 9, 10 at the time. That was the sort of, he was the sort of player who, who would inspire that. He, he could bring that magic to the pitch. So he definitely made me fall in love with football. Um, I think it's fair to say. Beautiful. Um, other suggestions that we've had on Twitter. Sherwood uh, England. Interesting uh, name there on Twitter. So John Barnes, he made everything seem so easy. And um, we also had El Vadero. So Fernando Torres, who used to watch highlights of his 0708 season at Liverpool with almost religious devotion. Ooh, what a season. That was a good, um, that was a good season. Yeah, incredible. Um, Seb Chappish did Andre Shevchenko, as well as Zidane for France, um, as well as Deco. Um, Moses, Dimitri Payet, interestingly enough. Good choice. Um, so yeah, so many great suggestions. So many great suggestions on there. Um, Lord Kevin CFC said Carlos Pavon because he scored against Mexico when Honduras beat Mexico 3 1. Do you think, do you think it's a bit of a weird one? Moments. Do you think the Piat one's a bit of a weird one? Because I wouldn't have known Piat from out- younger listener. Yeah, but I wouldn't have known um, Piat. I wouldn't dangerous. have found Piat from outside football. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been watching like random highlights and then been like, oh, Piat's good. Do you know what I mean? Is. Yeah, I know. Um, here's a, another unique suggestion. Uh, Alex Golitsin said, funnily enough, Joe 
the Man City legend. He was scoring goals for fun at CSKA at the time I started watching football. Wow, that's unusual. But Wagner Love was so good at that point as well. It was Wagner Love. I think Wagner Love may have been pre-Joe, and then Joe came and started being the Wagner Love. What a, what a lad. Great choice. Um, Kevin Corkazwara, butchered his name, but he said, Raquel May changed everything for me. Mm. Ooh, that is a really heels, good one. That is, is a, a really shout. good one. Um, Louise at Mackey referees to Clive Allen at Spurs in the 80s, of course. Uh, Simply Blue says, Glenn Hoddle, the player, not the manager. <laughs> like how he, he specified that one. Um, Paddy Murphy said, Sheeran, his final season at Blackburn. Um, Sebastian Alvarado said, Diego, Rebellis, personality and first touch. And finally, Adam Widrington said, Roberto Baggio, after watching footage of him from Italian 90 on repeat as a kid, notably that goal against Czechoslovakia. Um, so yeah, some fantastic suggestions. Thank you so much. Sending email. I think that was a great question that was submitted as well. Guess guess people inspired really to talk about what made them first fall in love with the game. We all love it. Um, before we go, um, is there anything else? Any other business that we need to discuss, Lawrence or Dave? Any burning questions or topics you just have to talk about? 48 teams for the World Cup, maybe? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, interesting. I mean, it's an interesting suggestion. I... <sighs> it's going to make a World Cup really difficult to host and sort of make it very specific for some countries to host. I think there's a lot of issues with it. Yes. Um, I, I am for expanding any big competition because I think it probably helps and makes it a bit more democratic in the sense that, mm. um, you know, uh, a bit fairer in that sense. You don't need to have all the money and sort of have only the top 24 teams. But it, apparently even in this sort I of system mm. a lot of teams get there and then they go into a playoff anyway so they sort of go and then have one game mm. and you're a bit like okay well we flew here and then we went out in a day do you know what I mean well mm. the reports are that the, the, the executives from Asia and Africa are the ones who are strongly in favour of this idea understandably but I mean after Euros Day we were talking about how that expanded tournament diluted the quality I mean is that not yeah. just what, we, what we're going to get in 2026 exactly. or whenever it is yeah, I think that's the that's the issue. That's exactly what I was going to say. That we we saw from expanding the European Championships that it made the the quality poor. It made teams play for draws. Portugal won the tournament and they didn't win a game in the group. That will happen in in the format if there's forty eight teams. It just seems a bit stupid. It seems all money driven rubbish. And, yeah, I mean the World Cup is supposed to be the best teams in the world. Like, sorry, that that's it. If you don't make through qualifying, you're not one of the best teams. But the point is also, Dave. I mean, I guess that's also it though. Is that you know, you could say, well, then why don't we just play the be- the eight best teams in the world? You know, wh- why, yeah, right, why right. even yeah, have that? Would, imagine that. Sounds the good. The best teams in the world that play like a mini league. Like, they each play each other once. Yeah. I sometimes want that. Terrible idea. I don't want that league necessarily, but the Champions well, League Lawrence, to be just Lawrence the champion. For president. That's what I say. Well, the thing <laughs> is, I, I, can see, I can see an argument for both sides. I wouldn't mind yeah. the sort of expanded league. I wouldn't mind it to be expanded because actually now, you know, we've seen a couple of other people who are you know, really enjoyable. Like I'm, you know, everyone sort of enjoyed Albania, Spain a bit more tonight because they saw what Albania had done at, at the Euros. Um, so I guess you can sort of make an argument both ways. And I'm sort of for, I'd love to see a few more sides get there, but I wonder if it's just sort of about the um, the makeup of the tournament rather than just having more, you know, the, the assumption is that because there's more, therefore it's better. And I don't know, or worse, uh, depending on your perspective. I wonder if it's more about the actual composition of the football and the way mm. that we put it together you know, maybe there's better ways of doing it and this is quite a headline grabber mm. well guys there you have it that is the Sunday 
podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to get your reviews and to rate the podcast on iTunes. Our favorite review will be being read out as comment of the week on Wednesday's podcast. Remember to get your questions in as well on Twitter at the front three. Let us know what you want us to talk about, what burning issues you want us to see discussed. And of course, as we said, get on FanDuel. Make sure you set up your team for next weekend. Oh, you can, by the way, you can use the code I am the whole, uh, which we totally oh, didn't course. say during the FanDuel bit because we're not all about the marketing. But if you do go over and sign there, if you do go up and sign up there um, and use the code I am the whole, if you're a brand new listener, then um, you guys can uh, make us look good. So that's mm. great. And that's what we you need. Know it makes sense. So we get them big brand sense. deals and it saves us having to sell out. Until Wednesday. Lawrence, where can the good people find you? Uh, you can go and find me on TFR this week where I will be doing Klopp's Dock. Oh, yeah, definitely go and check it out, guys. Well worth a watch. Uh, fantastic little documentary. Somewhat in-depth. Is that a good... Uh, 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 about as deep as a puddle. Um, mm. But lovely. How deep as a puddle. I mean, a good soundtrack. Um, yes. Mm. Dave, until Wednesday, where can the people find you? Well... Until Wednesday, when they find out the the truth about the world. Mm. Jesus. Are you promising some mind-blowing, cannot-miss seismic news on Wednesday's podcast? Dave? Big seismic think? news, like the world is good. There's going to be an earthquake. A, you know, it, everything's going to go to shit. Right. Okay. Yes. Finally, um, an Australian's so kids are going to be able to go on holiday. Jesus. Until <laughs> <laughs> that, Statman Dave, that is the latest place to find all the stats and stats. Love it. Um, guys, come over to TF. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. FR, me and Lawrence are there. Dave is there as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. We'll see you on Wednesday.